Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And And this this is Storymakers Show. And today on Storymakers, we answer a question about the use of poetic language for a, to a story's advantage rather than distraction. But first, what are you working on? Uh, right now, I'm just working on knowing what day it is. <laughs> so that has been my primary focus for most of the day. Uh, I've been working on your website. That's very exciting. And I am also uh, as a watching a couple of things from Skillshare. Got very uh, inspired by the Yi Yun Lee uh, class on short story. So that's really fun. Go check that out if you are a Skillshare person. Um, and so that's been fun. All of those things I've been thinking about. Cool. How well, about you? I, you know, last week I talked about my, my average of one a day submission. Mm-hmm. So I got through January and I had 31 for mm-hmm. January. Now I have to start catching up a little for February, but um, but we're recording this a little ahead of time. So I, by the time this was released, I will be so caught up. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so that's kind of the big thing I'm working on. And then I'm also finishing editing this sort of short, well, let's not call it a novella, let's just call it a short novel um, <laughs> that I that I wrote sort of in the in the interstices of this long editing process of my previous novel. So I'm, I'm editing that to give it to readers. Yeah. And one thing I actually didn't realize, I am not currently working, but someone else is currently working on a project I started, gosh, two years ago. And, you have an editor. And yeah. hail to Ben. <laughs> and um, getting, you know, a, an assembly put together. And it does occur to me that if you are out there and you are struggling and you feel like you're not being productive enough, you might look for a way that someone else can help move you forward. <laughs> yeah, that especially helps if you're working a lot and you don't have that much time, but you right. can hire someone else. Or even if you're just stuck, they can help you. Yeah. I mean, it's true. Like, I'm going to hand off this thing to a reader, and that, you know, so it's like I'm getting it ready for a reader, and then I'll hand it off, and that'll be someone else's job for a little while. Mm-hmm. So that's true. Good tip. Look at that, right out of the gate. Hot it's just tips for you, left, right, and center. Okay, so um, we are going to talk about using poetic language to story's advantage rather than distraction. I think it's quite interesting as the way it's phrased. Yes. Because it's sort of like, okay, poetic language is one thing. And like, what are its uses in story? Mm-hmm. And then story's advantage sounds to me like almost like a structure question. Like, how does poetic language help story, which is about like character and event to me when I think of story versus distraction, which is like, I don't know, somebody waving a flag and going, look over here. So, um, yeah. So thinking about the language of the question. Yes. (laughs) You know, it it strikes me. It's a good question. It's a great question. question. And it strikes me that one of the things kind of embedded in it is the notion that poetic language I don't know, somehow obscures what's happening, right? Ooh, yes, rather than deeply illuminates. Right. And so when I think about poetry and when I think about poetic language, what I actually think about is compression and really solid, tight uh, metaphor use. There's a, a lot you can learn as a prose writer from poetry about being really, uh, having a frugal Right. But what's interesting about that frugality is, is that, in fact, like a mattress, 
stuffed with money. Mm-hmm. There is more going on in each image right. than just than than just the image. So it's 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 it's, it's sort of. In some ways, it's frugality, but in other ways, it's it's very generous, right? Like the well, it is, and I use and I use frugality because the oftentimes the the amount of space allotted a poem is very small, right? Lots of so, white, white space. You know, thinking about how do you, how do you maximize uh, the space you have, and I think in a novel, we may have the misunderstanding that poetic language is about opening things up in kind of a long, loose way, mm. rather than the fact of the matter is it's really about getting super tight in a yeah. different way. So, so, so right, so that, that's the first term. It's like, what is poetic language? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, and I do think that poetic, what poetic language inspires, so when I read poetry prior to writing, um, it inspires a lot of sensate detail. Mm-hmm. And again, sensate detail that does a lot of work. Sensate detail that that is literal mm-hmm. and then r- rising up from that literal image or taste, smell, touch, whatever, is some deeper meaning, right? A resonance of meaning. Right. So to that end, assuming that you are writing a narrative, I think that the only time a language ever becomes distracting was when it's sort of inconsistent with its purpose. And, and by that I mean, uh, before as we were deciding what we were going to talk about today, uh, you know, a lot of my favorite work is in verse. Like Anne Carson. Yes. And... Primarily, is it Anne Carson? No, there's other folks I'm just trying to think about. I, I love it when people play with the actual style and structure of sentence, um, you we know, should we, check we've out all Girl, seen Woman, other because it's really good and it's in line. Yeah, I mean, we've all seen the short story written in one sentence, right? We've all seen those kinds of like what could be an exercise, but the truth is, if you forget you're reading one sentence and are immersed in the story, then the language doesn't distract distract you. But if you spend a lot of time going, oh my gosh, the sentence is still going on. That's amazing. <laughs> Even though it's amazing, it's it's taking you out of the story. And so when you make those kinds of choices, when when are you making those choices? And how does that voice serve your overall project? And I think that would be the question I would actually ask underneath. It's interesting because I think film is so, so much about making sure, even though you have these gorgeous images, right, each thing has to do a whole bunch of work. I mean, because you're just, you're in and you're out. You're doing this thing mm-hmm. you're there for an hour, two hours, five but hours. even <laughs> if you look at, like, the, the history of different movements within film, um, you'll see that the, in, the intentions or the responses of the aesthetics are based on things that are in, that are part of the artistic goal, right? So Mm -hmm. if you look at the dogma movement, so that is a film movement that is looking at how do we uh, set this criteria? There's a whole set of, like if you, if you were going to make a dogma film, it had to be these certain things. And Bandit says, did someone say dogma? Yes, he's saying dogma. Um, and so the intention of the style can of you, the... Can you give me an example of one thing? Do you remember anything that the dogma film, on the you dogma know, they, film they, checklist? They did not 
they, I think you could only have diegetic sound. So you could only have ha- sound as it appeared in the film. Like you did not have music, external. Yeah. So it, it had to all be part of what effects. was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at a film like Rachel Getting Married, right? Um, Is that a dogma film? It's not, but there were certain parameters that the filmmakers set for themselves. And one of them was that they did have music, and the music was made on set. Yeah. So, it was like part of the party scene or right. whatever. So it was part of the artistic intention, the way that the music happened. Which is a, a constraint, right? It's a constraint. Which is sort of interesting, because you love constraints. I really do. And there's a constraint. Yeah. But speaking of diegetic sound, if you can hear a rowing machine in the background, that is Charlie. Getting a good workout. And so if you look at that, right, that's one. Um, there have been other movements that have tried to, you know, or even films, right? When we think of Birdman, they wanted to give the illusion that it was all shot in a single take. Take. I didn't see Birdman. Um, it wasn't, but they, they worked really hard to create that illusion, whereas there's, gosh, and I forget what it's called. I'm blanking on it. An amazing film that goes through a Russian museum, and it was taken, like one take, and it went through the entire massive, it? it's like an hour, and it's a single take. So I feel like there this, are. I feel like this last year has been shot in a single take. <laughs> yes. So the idea then is if you are getting feedback from your readers that the language is pulling them out, right? then it's not necessarily meeting your artistic intention. So one of two things has to happen. One, uh, if you are really committed to a particular approach, if you really want to use what, what we're using here is poetic language, then I would say, how can you go even deeper to take the really strong tools of poetry and use those to add clarity? Because nine times out of ten, I think when we hear that you know something is poetic, what we actually mean is unclear. <laughs> Right. This is very important because I think you're right that the the word is misused to describe unclear language. And, you know, I've done a few faux John Ashbery poems in my life. They're really fun to do. Um, I don't know if he and like his probably, you know, do unfold into some kind of crystal clear linearity. But Well, they're doing something else, too. And I have to say, like, I was lucky enough to take an amazing workshop at Mills and... um, you know, in that I was introduced to this level of focus, thought, intention that was not. So, you, you know, we read John Ashbery and Is this we're a like. poetry class? Yeah. Do you remember who taught it? Why, yes. It was Julian Aspar. And in that class. Man, it has strong. I feelings. was definitely <laughs> flailing. You know, I definitely was. The the level of analysis that, that the people in that class were able to bring was crazy. They were looking at, you know, the patterns, the rhythmic patterns. The They were almost doing some mathematical pieces. They were looking at how do these things work both uh, sonically, like tonally. Like we have poetry and, and oftentimes we think like, oh, poetic voice, blah, blah, blah. But... When, the, when I watched these poets work, they were not doing, like, long 
flabby sentences. These were people who were really digging into rhythm, to the math of it, to mm. the sense of it, to the concrete Sound metaphor of it. Of it. Right, the, right. it was working on so, so many levels. And so there's a way in which we, I think, miss a fair amount, having not really been educated in what the goals of those artists are. Yeah. So when we are writing for a popular audience, we have to assume that not everyone is going to be also as interested in doing that much work. Right. Well, and it should, I think, uh, operate on kind of a literal level beautifully as well, right? So you have this image, you see it, it evokes something. I mean, that, that level of prose is very satisfying in and of itself, right? To just be immersed in a world, immersed in a moment, if it matters, you know, in, in story. I think this kind of also pushes us into this idea of metaphor. Where does metaphor show up in our stories? And how do we use it intentionally? And again, I'm going to keep hammering this idea of intention because uh, simply being beautiful doesn't actually engage people. But we, I, I am suddenly thinking about The Passion. By Jeanette Winterson. And, you know, that we have a, a narrator with webbed feet. Yes. And what, is, what are these metaphors that are character traits, that are uh, setting details, that are these different pieces that are powerful metaphors to tell us so much? Like, that is a poetic action. The other thing is that it's in a world where, where the men all have webbed feet, and then she has webbed feet. It was a gender move. It was a gender move. And so there you go, right? Like, so we're, but, but. I mean, among others, it also into, means you can walk on water. Right. So you can dig into things. So what is your intentional choice as a writer? Mm -hmm. What are the metaphors that you're, like, even if your readers don't on the first pass get it, it's you there. need to get it's it. It's there to get. Yes. <laughs> it's there to get. And you don't, you don't want to have to have someone smarter than you make it up. Yeah. And then, uh, again, because we don't really know what poetic means in this context. But we, boy, are we unpacking it. We really are. Well, I also think about style, right? And so we have like our minimalist style, our hyper-realist style, and then we have, uh, you know, maybe this is the uh, expressionist, right? So maybe it's less poetic and more expressionist in style, right? We're making kind of beautiful, less specific statements. Again, I think you can do that in your writing, but you have to help your reader get there before you do that. So when, and, and so I'm using painting here as, okay. as my, my metaphor. metaphor, right? And initially when expressionism was released, people did not go, oh. It was released. Expressionism 1.0. Basically. But people were not like, hey, that's great. That was not the initial response to a whole school of exploration. Okay, I just want to say this because so one of the movies that we watched mm -hmm. um, for Sundance, what yes. was it called? That... We really hope that everybody took the opportunity to do that. and, and Although it was kind of a miracle that we did, so we understand that that may have just passed but you by. Just, but just to say, I would encourage everybody to not just look at Sundance, but there are a number of, I mean, like, I think 
Every major film festival that's coming out in this next short period is going to be distanced. And I think Sundance right. did a great job. Yeah. And that gives you an opportunity to really see some amazing stuff that you're not going to see on Netflix. But go ahead. So what was the first film called? The, oh. The... Coming Home in the Dark. Is that what it was called? Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, um, so we're watching this film, and I'm thinking, like, I, it starts at 9 p.m., which is like, come on, people. I'm probably going to sleep through it. So I figure I'm going to sleep through it. I sl- often sleep through The Simpsons when my family are watching The Simpsons. So I'm kind of all cozied up and like, okay, let me lie down on the futon. And all of a sudden, this horrific, horrific thing happens. And it's like in the first, you know, 10 minutes of the film. And it's one of those things that you that almost doesn't happen, right? That you almost mm. can be like, this is not going to happen. And I jumped up and ran out of the room and was like, okay, I'm done. I'm done. And then I was sort of pulled back and I ended up watching a lot of it. But I was like, it was very exciting to me when I listened to the Q&A afterwards to kind of realize that this piece of art had had this intense reaction. You know, I right. they had forced in me this intense reaction of like, no, I'm done. And I feel like, we just see this, this historically through the years, things that shocked people, things that people stood up and walked out, things that, you know, and that's part of what art does, right? Mm-hmm. Part of what art does is like, it just hit me and it was so devastating that I was pissed. Right. And then only later when I was like listening to them, like talk about it and, and talk about how for them in reading the script when they got there and they were like, oh, this is really going there, right? Mm. That that meant something to them and I thought oh it's true right and I just think we hear about things where people are shocked and people walk out of exhibits and people whatever and you think like and we seem so it's sort of blasé and cynical it's like how can we how can we be shocked but so it's sort of fun to be shocked right not in the moment though in the moment it was just I was just like f you all and so how would you link that back to poetic language (laughs) You were talking about the expressionists and how people were not initially receptive. Right. And I was talking about not being initially receptive to something and, and, and yes. just that art bothers us. That That's mm-hmm. one of the things it does. And I do think that that's not only about the language, but that could be about the language. And so I actually, you know, that's a great transition to sort of look at because, so here we're talking about the intentionality. We're talking about all these other pieces. It doesn't actually guarantee. Let's say you do that perfectly you execute your vision and you put it out in the world and elizabeth runs in the other room yeah that doesn't mean you didn't actually execute perfectly it might in fact mean you did and so I mean, that the thing that made me run out of the room was certainly not something that they intended to be like soothing and 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 no. and pleasurable no and it had a it was a very intense film, and it had very clear aesthetics happening. Um, and sort of to sort of bring it back around, the flip side is, you know, they got picked up at Sundance, I think, because they were really exploring some intense things. And there's no guarantee they'd get into other festivals. But I will say that, one, to me, and I'm, I'm more of, a, of an outsider to mm-hmm. the form, but like, well, one like the acting, like I did, the acting seemed really strong. Like I was, no, no, I it was, was an amazing film. But, but, I, but I mean, I think this is sort of relevant to the language thing, which is like, is your character thinking about and reacting to the content, yes, yes. or the form, right? And if they're reacting to the form, and by character you mean reader, yeah, that's what I mean, your reader. 
if they're reacting to the form, then maybe that's a misstep. I didn't actually mean to imply that the only reason they got into Sundance was because of that one thing. And I wanted to kind of stay, take a step back and look, look at that. What I actually was meaning to say is that in their intention, they may be successful in some areas and rejected by some viewers in other contexts. Like me running out of the room. Like you running out of the room, but you came back. Yeah. Well, partly because you were watching it. Right. So I kept circling around. So this ultimately will end with this, which is that as a creator, you want to find people who understand what you are trying to do. And find the people... And make sure you're one of them. Yes. And then find the people who are going to help you bring that to the fore most prominently. It might be that the book that you want to write is not terribly commercial. And that's okay. That's better than okay. It's the book you want to write. And I think that that's another piece that I just wanted to sort of get back to, which was whatever poetic means to you, the book you write is the one that has to make you happy that you've just spent X number of years creating, editing, and building. And you cannot assume, even if it's the best book ever, that everyone's going to like it. And actually, I mean, there's no book that everybody likes, right? There are Pulitzer Prize winning, best-selling books that some people can't live without and other people can't get into, like can't get a, past a few pages. I mean, that's just reality. Absolutely. There's no book. So, you, right. So you, and, and the other thing is, you know, like we, I remember we read the, the book about Henry James. I know Colm mm-hmm. Toybin had one and someone else had one at the same time. And anyway, and the whole thing where the Trilby guy, mm-hmm. the Trilby hat guy, Mm-hmm. Du Maurier, right? Daphne Guy. Du Maurier's father, uncle, whatever, Guy Du Maurier. It's incredibly popular. Like, wh- and he sort of was like doing something else, and then, and then he said to James, like, I think I want to write a novel. And James, like, oh, whatever. You know, he's been laboring, laboring under sort of mm-hmm. relative obscurity, blah, blah, blah. And then Du Maurier, like, p- pushes out a novel, and it becomes like this huge best selling sensation, and the Trilby hat becomes the sensation. And Du Maurier is like world famous, and James is sort of gets some little, some prize that was mm-hmm. prestigious, but kind of nobody right. knew who he was. And, you know, and now, like, how many people remember Guy du Maurier? Besides us. Because we read about James. James. Yeah. Anyway, my point yeah. is that even if you, whether you write a best-selling Pulitzer Prize-winning book or an obscure little something, it's hard to say, you know, what your medium-term prospects are, but your long-term prospects aren't good. Oh my goodness, that is not what I'm saying at all. Someone's in a funk. I mean, long, long term. I just mean, unless you're Shakespeare, like, do what you love, oh, okay. mortality will follow. Okay, and again, someone's in a good mood. So with that, um, I actually just want to encourage everyone to dig as deeply into the things they love in their work as they can. And I I find that the more that... Uh, people do that, the better their work is. And it may not be this particular piece that finds a home in that way, but as you become more skilled in in your voice, in your worldview, eventually it will find a home and you will find your people. Here, here. Let's toast to that. Chin, chin. Chin, chin. It is time for... Steal this. Amateur poets. Borrow. Professional poets. Steal. What have you come across in your wanderings and readings that you would like to take and make all your own? 
Um, be rich. <laughs> Let's be rich. So it didn't occur to me prior to just this moment that being rich could be helpful in an artist's life. It so has totally occurred to you. <laughs> You're like, I'm just thinking of this. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I'll go first. You go first. So in struggling with some stuff, um, I have returned to Tim Ferriss's tome. Giant, like giant door Life advice from, yeah. from all these people things. And so this one fellow. It's like meetings with mentors. Yeah, and others. They're right, right over there. And I be four them? inches taller. I think that's the name <laughs> of the other book. Actually, what you can do is you can step on the books and achieve that goal right there. That's why it's called that. Yeah. Be Tri- four inches taller. Right. Tribe of mentors. Oh, tribe of. life advice. I, meeting with mentors is something else entirely. I'm sorry, I don't know tribe of mentors. Yes, tribe of mentors. life advice, which could be read in multiple ways. Too, speaking right. of poetic language. Thinking about where your short punctuation. Short life advice from the best in the so world. So if there's a hyphen there. <laughs> short life advice. <laughs> or, you know, short, yeah, anyway. Um, and then Tools of Titans, the tactics, routines, and habits of billionaires, icons, and world-class performers. Again, I think the biggest habit habit of billionaires is to be born into a family that already has money. <laughs> so though those of you who've forgotten to do that, <laughs> there was there's a whole like, structure. There's the whole thing about like how to build an empire, right? Which is like you start with like a hot dog cart on the corner and eventually you like get save up enough to buy a second cart and then a storefront on a corner and then eventually like a second store and then you inherit a supermarket chain. And that's how you become wealthy in America. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, I was inspired by a fellow who is a quadruple amputee. And one of the things that Tim Ferriss asks everybody who cares to answer it is like, what's a failure in your life that set you up for later success? So this guy, Kyle Maynard, he's a best-selling author, entrepreneur, blah, 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 blah. He's also like a wrestling champion wrestler. Oh my God, and there's this part where, they, where he's like, where he's like, um, what did my Tim pa- well, I'll get there, but I just want to say, there's a part where he says, my parents had me continue wrestling after I lost my first 35 matches. And like, people were saying, this is child abuse. And he's like, 10, 10, less than a decade later, those same people were saying I was unfairly advantaged, right? So anyway, so he, so he has, tells the story in the failure. He's like, everything is, a, he says, everything is a failure that, um, like, it's hard to think of anything that, that was, you know, didn't wasn't a failure that set me up for later success. So he says, he tells the story about his grandmother saying to him, get me a tablespoon of sugar for cookies. I'm making cookies. And so he had to like hold the jar with like two of his like limbs. And then, which was so it was hard to get it open and hard to hold it. And then he had to, he could only fit one limb in and he had to like balance the measuring thing to, in order to get it out. And he would try like 50 times before he'd like get the sugar so I'm like reading this story about this kid, right? This quadruple amputee kid who's like working so hard to get his grandmother like a tablespoon of sugar for cookies. And I'm just like, I think I can handle whatever's going on in my life right now. So, and yeah, <laughs> I'm going to steal that attitude, <laughs> that good attitude of like, I'm going to keep, I can keep trying. I can keep trying a little longer. Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay. That's what I'm stealing. Thank you, Kyle. All right. That's a, you know what? I cannot top that. <laughs> Just like, let's face it, anything I'm going to say after that is, like, going to be a dirty diaper in the laundry. So, with that, go write something. <laughs>